0: Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. Today's episode features the movie Space Camp, made in 1986. And here's your host, Jeff Cummings. Hi, everybody, we're back for another episode of The Baton, and unlike John Williams, we are not taking a year off between films. As you will remember in the episode discussing The River, John Williams didn't write one note of music for a theatrical film in 1985, marking the first time that filmgoers went more than a year without a new score from the maestro since he began composing film scores in 1959. He did stay busy with non-film music work in the time after finishing the score to the River in 1984, so it wasn't like he was sitting at home twiddling his thumbs. And when the opportunity came for him to write his next film score in 1986, some might have thought that the plot was right up his alley, a movie about outer space. Well, kind of. The movie was called Space Camp, and joining me on the show today to talk about
1: the score is Brian Thompson. How are you today, Brian? I'm doing fine, Jeff, and I'm very excited to be co-hosting the podcast with you today. I'm a huge John Williams fan, and I've been listening to the baton since the very beginning. John Williams' music for Space Camp is a personal favorite of mine, and I feel one of his hidden gems from the 1980s. Brian, how about telling the listeners about yourself? Certainly. I want to start by saying that I'm not a professional musician or music teacher, so don't expect any elaborate piano demonstrations from me. I have a PhD in chemistry and work as a research scientist for a small pharmaceutical company in North Carolina. I did play the trombone in middle school, high school, and college in both marching and concert bands, but I haven't touched it since. I have been interested in music for most of my life and that is almost certainly due to a love for film music from an early age. Film scores are really the modern concert hall in terms of most people's exposure to classical and orchestral music and I am no exception. As a result, I've been a John Williams fan for as long as I can remember. I started collecting soundtracks in middle school in the 80s on cassette tape. I bought my first CDs right before starting college in the summer of 1993, starting with Jurassic Park, the Spielberg-Williams collaboration, and the Star Wars soundtrack anthology.
0: I started collecting soundtracks at that time, too. My first purchase was Kid Stuff, which had re-recordings of some of Williams' best themes as played by the Boston Pops. It was the best way to begin appreciating who John Williams was.
1: So, Brian, it sounds like you got some good CDs to start your collection as well. That is just a drop in the bucket. I'm proud to say that after all these years, I own almost every John Williams film score ever released officially on CD. Yes, even including the rare 1992 Japanese CD release of Space Camp. Ask my family, my John Williams CD collection is sacred to me. And that's
0: understandable. So if you started college in 1993, you were still in grade school when Space Camp hit theaters in summer 1986. I was 11
1: when the film was released, so I guess that would be the fifth grade. I do not remember seeing it in theaters. I likely saw it for the first time in the late 80s on VHS or TV. Until I sat down to watch it again for this podcast, I'm sure I hadn't seen the movie since the 90s.
0: I was 12 when the movie hit theaters, but I never saw it, even though I was probably the right demographic. That summer, the only movie that interested me was The Transformers the movie, which came out a couple of months after space camp. I went to save all my money so I could see The Transformers movie and have a big tub of popcorn. And here's a spoiler alert coming. After they killed Optimus Prime, I never wanted to see another movie again. But I've since gotten over that.
1: <laughs> As a kid growing up in the 80s, I was big into Transformers for the TV show and the toys. But ironically, I never actually saw the movie from 1986 until just a few years ago when a coworker worker me his DVD copy to finally watch. I was, of course, already aware of the death of Optimus Prime story angle. People need to remember that for kids back in that era, that revelation was nearly on the same level as I Am Your Father from The Empire Strikes Back.
0: Yeah, probably more shocking to be honest. But let's get back to Space Camp. So the movie had a very interesting origin. It was not produced by a major Hollywood studio, but rather by the motion picture arm of ABC Television called ABC Motion Pictures. This production company actually did quite well in the 1970s and 1980s, producing the very violent Dustin Hoffman thriller Straw Dogs in 1971, the Meryl Streep movie Silkwood in 1983, and Pritzzy's Honor with Jack Nicholson and Oscar winner Angelica Houston in 1985. And most notably, ABC Motion Pictures was responsible for the
1: 1972 film version of Cabaret. Space Camp has the fingerprints of many TV people all over it. The film project began life as an idea by Patrick Bailey when he learned about the real-life Space Camp through his wife, who was working in TV production at the time. Bailey visited the camp in Alabama and, being impressed with what he saw, took the story idea to a longtime TV producer, Leonard Goldberg, who had recently produced the hit movie War Games in 1983, which also featured teenagers and technology. Space Camp is directed by first-time feature film director Harry Weiner, who went promptly back to television afterwards. Probably the biggest thing Weiner did in his career, besides working on this one movie, was directing a bunch of episodes of the TV show Felicity from 2000 to 2002. Weiner got some big names to star in this film. Arguably the biggest of them all was Kate Capshaw, who starred in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom in 1984. But then he also had Leah Thompson, who just one year earlier was in Back to the Future so the two female leads had connections to Steven Spielberg, but of course, Capshaw would later have a more lasting connection to Spielberg as his wife. The other female lead in the film was Kelly Preston, who, like Kate Capshaw, would become more famous as the wife of a major Hollywood celebrity when she married John Travolta in 1991. One of the male actors got seen in a bigger movie at that time. Tom Skerritt was the hard-nosed instructor in Top Gun, and plays an equally hard-nosed instructor in Space Camp. And, in an early role, was veteran TV actor Terry O'Quinn about 20 years before he would become famous as John Locke on the TV show Lost. And, of course, we have to mention Leif Phoenix, who would go on to become more famous when he changed his name to Joaquin Phoenix. Leif was the younger brother of River Phoenix and part of an acting family. Leaf had been acting since he was 8, but made his big screen debut in space camp at 11 years old. The film used the real space camp facility in Huntsville, Alabama for scenes that took place there. The launch pad with the space shuttle that we see in the film was the actual one at Cape Canaveral, Florida. Filming finished in fall of 1985, and the movie was going to come out as a spring 1986 release and then the real-life space shuttle Challenger exploded in January 1986. The producers had two options. One, put the film into theaters later in the year and cross their fingers, or two, put it into a vault and never let it see the light of day. They chose the first option, putting the film out in June. I remember being in my school's
0: auditorium watching with hundreds of others when the Challenger exploded. It still freaks me out, and the scene in the movie when the kids mess up in a simulator and it tells them there are no survivors,
1: that gave me chills. And with that reaction over 30 years after the tragedy, you can imagine the bind the filmmakers were in at the time in early 1986.
0: Since the movie was going to get a theatrical release, the producers went to 20th Century Fox Music Department head Lionel Newman for suggestions on who to hire as the composer. And Newman's first name was the logical one. John Williams.
1: And it couldn't have come at a better time. When Newman approached Williams about working on the project, Williams had been told to stop work on a live action movie musical about Peter Pan with Spielberg. That project had been in the works while Spielberg was working on the color purple, and Williams was working with lyricist Leslie Bricus on creating some songs to use in the film. Once Spielberg decided to drop out of the Peter Pan film in 1985, Williams put aside the music he wrote, but would come back to it in only a couple of years. And from what I understand, Spielberg was
0: gung-ho on making this Peter Pan movie with the release date sometime in 1987 or 1988. He asked Williams and Brickus to put their songwriting skills on hyperdrive since the songs were to help flesh out the somewhat flimsy script at the time. The plot at the time doesn't really follow what we would finally see on the screen in Hook in 1991, but it was gonna be significant in that it was Williams' first foray into creating an original musical from his own music instead of others as he did in the 1960s and 1970s. It was the birth of Spielberg's first child that put him off the idea of spending three months in England working on the movie while his newborn son was in Los Angeles. So Williams had some free time in 1986 in the spring and Newman pounced on the window of opportunity. Remember that Williams had his commitments to the Boston Pops Orchestra every summer, so he had to get his work done on this score by late April. So he got to writing the score so he could have it recorded by early April 1986. What stands out for me in Williams' compositions for Space Camp, Brian, is the lack of a theme for any of the characters. And if my memory serves me correctly, this is the first John Williams score in 12 years that doesn't feature thematic material for any of the major characters. You'd have to go back to 1976's Midway for the last score to feature music that portrays the environment of the film more than the people in it. But that's not to say there aren't any themes featured in the film. The one we hear the most can't be described as anything other than the main theme since it's not written for any particular person or place. It perfectly encapsulates what Williams was going for in his score. He's not trying to create music to showcase the upcoming heroism of the teenage astronauts who are launched into outer space and have to work together to get back to Earth. He's trying to, I believe, keep the film grounded on Earth while still conveying some mysticism about life among the stars. That's best portrayed in the opening credits in numerous ways. First, with the synthesizer, and then with the French horn. I love the strings here – it gives a sense of flight. And then we see young Andy staring up at the stars. And the innocence of the flute and the strength of the solo trumpet come in. Unlike the other themes he wrote in this time period, I have to say that the main theme for Space Camp has the least resonance for me. It's not trying to be an instantly recognizable theme, so it took a while for me to pick it out as I was watching the film and
1: later when I listened to it on
0: the soundtrack album.
1: What I like most about the main theme is the character of the melodic line. It's not as heroic as the other themes of the era, as you mentioned, Jeff. But it does have what i like to call optimistic chord progressions again i'm no music theorist but basically the main melody is essentially ascending up the scale so while the melody is nowhere near as grand as the themes for superman luke skywalker or indiana jones the notes used do seem to convey a general sense of optimism and reassurance which is in abundance in williams music from this era If there is a theme that might be associated with any of the characters, it's the theme written for the friendship between the young Max played by Lee Phoenix and the NASA robot Jinx. Our introduction to this theme is the scene after Jinx malfunctions when several of the teenage boys play with him. Max, who is only 11 years old, somehow knows how to fix a NASA-created machine and we get the Friends Forever theme underneath. The theme is very gentle and sweet and sounds very much inspired by the kind of music heard in E.T. about the friendship between a boy and an alien. That theme in E.T. feels much more lyrical and well-developed in comparison. The friendship theme in Space Camp is much simpler in nature, but to be fair, Jinx is a relatively minor character in this film. Before we go into the music for The Outer Space Adventure, we have to mention that training montage. Talk about quintessential 80s music. Heartbeeps may win the award as the most electronic of all Williams scores, but this cue is the most electronic synth 80s cue he ever wrote. The main theme is played here in a very synth pop style using keyboards and drum machines.
0: It sounds so out of place in the film score, but I loved hearing it. Again, it stresses that John Williams would have been a great electronic music composer if he decided to head in that direction like his colleague Marie Jarre was doing right at this time. As part of the space camp experience, the campers get to sit inside the actual space shuttle during one of the routine engine tests so they can feel the roar of the engine and get excited about being an astronaut. The French horns are back with the main theme, backed by the trumpets as the campers get their first view of the shuttle. Williams brings in more of the orchestra as the raw power of actually sitting in a real space shuttle is becoming a reality for the kids. This is as bold as the music gets until the final minutes of the film, even as we get a couple more action-y scenes later on.
1: Yes, let's talk about those two action scenes. What we'll find as we listen to them is that there is no thematic material in them, the result of Williams not writing themes for any of the characters. Our first scene of tension takes place after young Max takes a spacewalk out to help Kate Capshaw's character Andy retrieve an oxygen tank from a space station still being constructed. Max is small enough to reach the oxygen tanks, and as he struggles to get the second tank free from the space station, he breaks loose from the structure and can't get back because he doesn't have a jetpack. Andy goes to rescue him, and the music we hear has some tense writing, primarily in the strings.
0: As I was watching the scene, I was actually a bit worried that Andy might not catch Max. But I found it very odd that Williams didn't write music to really amp up the tension. And perhaps that was an instruction from the director or a conscious decision on his part.
1: I think that the lack of thematic material robs the cue of some character and makes it a little bit generic. But who knows, perhaps the director had a specific idea here, like you said. After her rescue of Max, Andy tries to attach the second oxygen tank to the shuttle. A sudden burst of gas sends her flying into one of the walls of the shuttle bay, knocking her unconscious. This ultimately sends her flying into space, and she now has to rely on Max and the rest of the team to work together and save her before the shuttle begins its re-entry procedure. Again, the music that accompanies this scene is tense yet devoid of any thematic material. Thank you Now let's go back a bit in the story to the point where the shuttle leaves Earth's atmosphere and the kids' first experience being in outer space. At this point, Williams introduces what I refer to as the weightlessness theme on the high strings. The music has a playful tone early on as the kids float around in the cabin, then takes on a more grand and majestic sense as they first see Earth from orbit through the shuttle windows. This music cue is called In Orbit on the soundtrack album, and I truly believe that it is one of the finest music cues that John Williams has ever written.
0: Well, Brian, that's a bold statement.
1: Why do you think it's one of his best? John Williams has actually managed to somehow capture the sound of zero gravity with that beautiful string line. If you took random people off the street and played this for them over headphones and asked them what they pictured or imagined while listening to it, I guarantee 90% would say either flying or floating in air or space. I also love the way he effortlessly moves between the main and weightlessness themes in the latter half of the queue. To my ears, this is not unlike the way John Williams weaves Luke's theme, Yoda's theme, and the Force theme together in the Dagobah cues for The Empire Strikes Back. Add in the glorious French horn counter melody and the triumphant brass conclusion and you have a legendary cue.
0: And perhaps it's a good thing that I'm not a composer because I might have thought about putting a female choir in there. But that may be my mind hearing similar music written by James Horner for Apollo 13
1: about 10 years later. Well, now let's move to the end of the film. The crew has successfully piloted the shuttle back into Earth's atmosphere and are preparing to land the craft on an Air Force runway in White Sands, New Mexico. The final few minutes of the film clearly underwent some heavy late-stage editing because the music as heard in the film is drastically edited compared to the final track on the soundtrack album. At this point in the cue, we get a final triumphant statement of the weightlessness theme. Most of the music from this point until almost the end of the cue is edited out of the final film, with the music as heard in the film being edited almost measure by measure. This next section of music was written for a scene that was ultimately cut from the film. In it, a young boy sitting on the roof of his home sees the shuttle flying through the night sky. This scene was clearly meant to bookend the opening scene of the film with young Andy, with the music here written in a similar style using a solo trumpet. At this point, the music returns to the film, and the main theme takes on a triumphant quality with full orchestra, cymbal crashes, and timpani. This happens as the shuttle successfully touches ground back on Earth. I stated earlier the music as heard in the final couple of minutes of the film is drastically edited the unedited cue as heard in the final track on the soundtrack album flows much more organically and is a much more satisfying listening experience i don't think the music editing is
0: terrible because you can't really hear the cuts as much as you can in return of the jedi or temple of doom and i got chills listening to the final seconds of that cue Very reminiscent of the last minute or so of E.T. with the timpani and the brass celebrating the moment. So we would be remiss if we did not mention the source music used in the first half of the film. This part of the film is very much in the 80s teen camp vibe, so rock and roll songs were to be expected in the sound mix. Two songs by Dire Straits and one song by Eric Clapton are prominently featured, but perhaps most of interest here are the three songs written and performed by John Williams' youngest son, Joseph Williams. After working with his dad on Return of the Jedi, Joseph was able to slide in the songs Turn It Up, Don't Look Back, and American Girl into Space Camp, all three of which are heard in the film itself, but not included on the soundtrack album. It's odd that they weren't included on any soundtrack releases, since they were apparently composed for the film. Joseph was in his mid-twenties and around this time had become the lead singer for the American rock band Toto. Turn It Up and Don't Look Back have been featured on later albums by Toto, but strangely, American Girl never got a commercial release, though the band has performed it often, especially during their year-long 2019 world tour. Neither of these three songs were heard for more than a few seconds in the background during the film and actually do nothing to comment on the story. So... Brian, I think Space Camp holds up pretty well as a film. I had never watched it all the way through until I needed to do so for this episode, and I was never really bored watching it. I think the nostalgia of seeing Lee Phoenix before he became the enigma that is Joaquin Phoenix played into that. Of all the actors in this movie, he's the only one to really gain an equal level of stardom and respect in the film community. He's earned four Oscar nominations, and because we're recording this episode just before the 2020 Academy Awards ceremony, we don't know if he will become an Oscar winner for his performance in Joker, but all signs point toward that. I think people are starting to go through Phoenix's filmography recently because when I went to my local video store to rent the DVD copy of Space Camp, it was already rented, which is really weird. I was completely surprised until I realized that someone might have been curious to see Joaquin Phoenix's film debut, so I would imagine that Space Camp is going to get a bump in interest. We can only wonder how this movie would have performed in theaters if the Challenger disaster hadn't happened. I do feel it might have found a good audience mixed with young kids, teenagers, and adults, and having the female lead of one of the biggest films of 1984 and the female lead of the biggest film of 1985 would have been great for marketing.
1: Well, I have to say that even if the Challenger tragedy had never happened, I still don't think the film would really have been too much more of a financial success. This movie was just never going to be a Star Wars or E.T. level success on its own merits. Looking at the movie again over 30 years later, it's pretty deeply mired in the 80s and not really in a good way like Back to the Future, and it's definitely a product of its time. The plot is painfully thin, and the leaps of logic required to accidentally launch a space shuttle full of teens into space are considerable. The characters are all fairly standard stock, and each has their one major character flaw that they overcome by the end of the movie to save the day. Catherine has a controlling personality and has difficulty trusting others. Kevin is too cool for school and doesn't like to accept responsibility, etc and apparently a multi-million dollar advanced AI robot is allowed to simply roam the facility freely just for fun. There are also a lot of Star Wars references in the script because Phoenix character Max is a huge Star Wars fan. Normally I would like this, but they do seem to kind of date the movie pretty heavily. Having said all that, however, I actually did enjoy watching the movie more recently than I thought I would. I wouldn't necessarily recommend it to younger generations, but a Generation Xer that grew up in the 80s might find it to be a fun little nostalgic callback to their childhood era. Outside of nostalgia, though, the movie doesn't have a whole lot to offer 30 years later.
0: But in terms of the score, I think we can both agree it's a great composition. No
1: doubt about that, Jeff. I find the score to Space Camp holds up even compared to the very best of John Williams' music from the 1980s, and that is really saying something. Is the overall score an equal to something like The Empire Strikes Back or Raiders of the Lost Ark? No, that would be overstating it, but various cues and musical moments do stand alongside even masterpieces like those two examples. I personally consider the score at a space camp to be the closing work to John Williams' golden era from 1977 to 1986. By extending the end of the era to 1986 instead of ending it in 1983, as most John Williams fans do, we can include works like Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, the Los Angeles Olympics music, all the way up to Space Camp. Brian, I'm
0: glad you bring this up because I've wanted to touch on this conversation for some time about the length of the John Williams Golden Era. I've spoken about this on previous episodes dating back to Jaws. But I say the Golden Age goes all the way up to 1993, ending with Schindler's List. Now, yes, some of the scores from the late 80s weren't great, but you have to admit the scores for The Last Crusade, Home Alone, Jurassic Park, and Schindler's List are on the same level as his stuff from the 1970s and early 1980s.
1: Actually, I would add Hook to that list as well. It's a personal favorite of mine from the 90s. There is no doubt that those scores that you listed are all terrific, and 1993 does mark a career inflection point for both Williams and Spielberg. But it's not just that some of the late 80s, early 90s scores don't quite equal the earlier work. There also seems to be a tonal or stylistic shift that begins to take place at this time as well. When you combine both of these factors, I see 1986 as the end of the golden era.
0: Yes, the music does sound a bit different, but I think that is due to a change in the type of movies made more than just a change in the composer's style. One of the reasons John Williams has had such a long career, as you've discovered through this podcast, is his ability to change with the times, and he did so almost effortlessly and seamlessly in the late 1980s. So, Brian, I guess we'll have to agree to disagree on this. So be it. So you mentioned in your timeline that the John Williams Golden Era lasts up to space camp, but perhaps you'd include another composition John Williams did in 1986. That year marked the 100th birthday of the Statue of Liberty, and the folks organizing the big birthday bash asked John Williams to write some music to play during the televised ceremony on July 4th. As he told the Boston Globe, quote, I've tried to create a group of American airs and tunes of my own invention that I hope will give some sense of the event and the occasion. And with that, let's take a listen to part of the Liberty fanfare. ends the piece with his famous buttons that always give me goosebumps. A bit more brass than I would have expected for music written for a female character, but it does have the requisite woodwinds and strings to make up for that. So Williams was asked to write another fanfare that summer, this time for the anniversary of Texas's Declaration of Independence. It was called Celebration Fanfare. And unless you attended the September 1986 Houston Symphony Orchestra concert, or one of two Boston Pops concerts in 1987, chances are you've never heard it. The Celebration Fanfare never got a commercial release and so we're only left to wonder what it would have sounded
1: like. Actually, I had never even heard of Celebration Fanfare until now, so I'm definitely curious about that work. And Jeff, you have successfully convinced me that Liberty Fanfare is golden age material indeed.
0: My work here is done. (laughs) So it does sound like the music of that time, of course. So I'm really glad you're adding it to your list. So John Williams wrapped up 1986 by starting work on a couple other small commission pieces before getting back into film scoring almost a year after wrapping up his work for Space Camp. This next film project would be a major retooling of the novel The Witches of Eastwick, a dark comedy that would bring Williams back into great character thematic writing and provide us with one of my favorite
1: scores. For whatever reason, The Witches of Eastwick is not a score that I listen to very often, so I'll definitely be paying close attention to next week's episode.
0: And maybe I will convince you to extend your Golden Age timeline by one year. So Brian, thank you very much for joining me on today's episode. It's been a lot of fun learning about this score from Space Camp, and I'm sure everyone listening learned something new today
1: as well. And that really is one of the goals of this podcast, isn't it? I hope any listeners who weren't very familiar with this particular score now have a greater appreciation for it and are encouraged to seek out the music for themselves. Once complete, this podcast series is going to be an invaluable resource for those wanting to learn about and appreciate the career of John Williams. Thank you very much, Jeff, for allowing me to be a part of that journey with today's episode.
0: And as I always do, I encourage all of you to reach out to me with your comments about the show by sending me an email to jeffswim at AOL.com. And please take some time to write a review on Apple Podcasts as well and post comments on the Podbean app. We're going to Eastwick for the next episode. And until then, the baton is down.